Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on April 1st, 2020, which is, of course, April Fool's Day. I'm Anna Garcia, and this is no joke. (laughs) Joining me today is forensic psychologist and friend, Dr. Judy Ho. Hello, Judy. How are you? Hi, Anna. I'm doing great. Really nice to see you. I'm, I'm, I'm quite relieved to see you and especially a mental health professional <laughs> because I know you're going to yes. be able to help us. You, you've got some uh, tools and some suggestions that you're going to share with us at the end of the episode. So I'm very much looking forward to that. And we have Dr. Judy, so many people from around the world who are, you know, sheltering in place and they are listening to this podcast. I want to do a shout out to our Corona Isolation Gang. That's what they call themselves on YouTube. They're our (laughs) followers and they're in Morocco, Daytona Beach, Japan, Helena, Montana. So a shout out to all of you. Thank you for supporting us. We're really excited that um, we're all in this together. Yes, absolutely. We have two cases this week. Police are investigating a bizarre case in Arkansas where a man is accused of murdering both the mother and the daughter, but doing it 23 years apart and virtually almost at the same location. It's unbelievable. Plus, Joe Exotic from Netflix's Tiger King docuseries has filed a lawsuit from jail against two federal agencies, and he is seeking a pardon from President Donald Trump. But first, a word from one of our newest sponsors, Raycon. You know, I am constantly staying up to date on the latest true crime news. Of course, it's my life. And with Raycon wireless earbuds, it's making doing so so much easier. Raycon was co-founded by Ray J and celebrities like Snoop Dogg and Cardi B are obsessed with them. They also come in a range of colors and patterns. And did I mention that they are insanely comfortable? The earbuds come in this great little compact carrying case and the case also charges the earbuds 
earbuds. Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of other premium wireless earbuds on the market, and they sound just as amazing as those top audio brands. Their newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds, are their best ones yet with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, and more bass and more compact designs that gives you this really nice noise-isolating fit. It also comes in a bunch of new and fun colors. You can click on the link in the description box below to get 15% off your order or go to buyraycon.com slash TCD. That's for True Crime Daily for 15% off your order. Once again, that's buyraycon.com slash TCD for 15% off your order. I think you'll be pleased. So, Judy, the first case that we are going to look at is the case of Joe Maldonado Passage, who was also known as Joe Exotic. Now, if you aren't familiar with the hit docu-series from Netflix called Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness, here's a short recap for you and a fair warning. Uh, There may be some spoilers ahead if you haven't seen it. We're going to do our best not to give away all of the details. So Joe Maldonado Passage, or Joe Exotic, as we will refer to him, he describes himself as a gay, gun-toting cowboy with a mullet, and it is a horrible haircut. I mean, it is just horrendous. If there's a crime, that is the crime. Um, He's also a polygamist. He's married to two men. He's a country singer, an Oklahoma zookeeper. Well, actually, his zoo, you'll see what happens in the documentary. Um, He doesn't have a zoo anymore. And he is obsessed with these big cats, tigers, lions, I mean, panthers. It's just unbelievable. He goes by the name Joe Exotic, but he was born Joseph Schreibvogel. Okay, so he owned this exotic animal park, and he claimed that he had the biggest collection of cats in America. And I know that, Judy, you're also going to give us some background into... um, people who collect these animals and if there's a similarity in personality and, you know, behaviors, like why do they go after these big cats, do you think? Mm. Well, Anna, it's a very good question. And I think that at the very base level, people who find themselves drawn to big animals, kind of the same people that find themselves drawn to really big cars. It's a way for them to have a method of intimidation and power when maybe they don't feel that powerful and confident themselves. And of course, this is a generalization, but I think when you look at the personality profiles of people who collect big items, whether it's cars or animals, there's definitely this undercurrent of insecurity and wanting to show the world this front that would allow them to feel more empowered. Well, he certainly is quite a personality, rather flamboyant in everything, whether it's his dress, whether it's his speech. Um, he's very in your face. I mean, he's he's yes. really he's really something. It, if it weren't true, it would be hard to believe. So let's look at the facts of the criminal case here. In 2019, he was found guilty of hiring a hitman to kill his rival and nemesis, Carol Baskin. This is an animal activist who runs the Big Cat Rescue in Florida. Each of them has been trying to put the other out of business for years. This is a feud that has been going on for years. And based on the show, 
they hate each other. I mean, they just hate each other. What Carol wanted was she wanted the zoo shut down and she also wanted Joe to stop breeding these tigers, letting people pet them, and then selling these cubs. So she was determined to shut him down. So Joe then turned around and said, well, you know, Carol, you're a hypocrite because you're making money off these exotic animals anyway. You're just calling it a sanctuary. And Joe Exotic was found guilty of hiring a hitman for $3,000 to get rid of Carol. So let's look at the facts of the case. So what's your reaction so far, Dr. Judy? Well, I mean, first of all, this is just a really incredible story because I think when you are so singularly focused on taking someone else down, that feeling of anger and resentment, it just boils over so much that even for the average person, maybe you just get very obsessive about it. But for somebody like Joe, obviously he went all the way to a crime. And that isn't common. You know, just because you're angry at somebody and you hold resentment doesn't mean that you're going to go into crime. So there's something very distinctive about Joe and his own underlying personality structure that would lead him to go this far. Let's look at the murder for hire plot a little bit more deeply. Investigators say that he tried and failed to hire several people to kill Carol, that he was constantly talking about, hey, I want to kill Carol. Can you help me out? So in 2017, authorities say that Joe Exotic paid one of his employees $3,000 to kill Carol. But the employee ultimately took off with the money and never did anything. About this same time, the FBI is looking into Joe Exotic's businesses. And the FBI gets wind of this murder for hire plot. It is during this time period that he's under surveillance that the authorities actually get the goods, if you will. The, the, they get the information, they get people to cooperate, they have recorded conversations, and as a result, he gets convicted. Joe is convicted and is sentenced to 22 years in prison, but he's convicted on two charges of the you know, attempted murder, the murder for hire plot. And the remaining charges have to do with violations of um, animal laws and how he kept his records. They claim that he falsified records. So in addition to the conviction for the murder for hire plot, he was also convicted of unlawfully killing five tigers in October of 2017. The tigers are an endangered species and he shot to death five aging tigers, which apparently violated the Endangered Species Act. That accounted for several of the other counts. Now, the feds also say that he falsified several documents regarding the animals. They allege that Joe filed documents that the tigers and the lions were being donated, but really, they were being sold and the ledgers weren't matching up with what had actually happened, according to the authorities. Now, the entire time, Joe Exotic has maintained his innocence. So here is what's new this week. Joe is acting as his own attorney, and he has filed a $94 million lawsuit in federal court against his former business partner, prosecutors, and several government agencies. Joe Exotic claims that he humanely euthanized the tigers, and they were all shot in the skull. He seemed to say that that was the best way to euthanize them. He said that they were old and that they suffered because they had been declawed and they were crippled. That was his story. So how does this sound to you so far, Dr. Judy? Well, it really sounds like Joe here is spinning a story. And 
in general, when people say that they want to represent themselves in the court of law and they don't actually have legal experience, that always makes me wonder why they feel like they can do something that is an expert area of work. I'm sure that Joe was offered to be represented by somebody because that is a basic right, but he is choosing to represent himself. And that to me shows that there's potentially some paranoia going on that if I share this with a lawyer that maybe they won't do a good job for me because I'm the one who really knows my case the best. And it sounds like he's just spinning a narrative, a web, something that will get him out of all of the things that he did, even though they have so much evidence for all of these different charges already. I think part of the problem is he's also broke. The guy doesn't have a dime. I believe he had a public defender for the criminal case, and this is a civil case. Still, I think he probably could have found an attorney that would have at least wanted the publicity and worked for free for the publicity. Um, But nonetheless, he is, he does seem to have the personality where he thinks he is the best. I mean, he ran for president. He ran for governor of Oklahoma, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. I was trying to avoid the word narcissistic, but I feel like that's where we're going with this, that this is somebody with some narcissistic personality traits, right, Anna? Uh, Could be. I mean, certainly (laughs) the layman's version for me is he's got a big personality. (laughs) Yeah, there Um, you go. He claims that his civil rights have been violated because of false imprisonment, false arrest, and entrapment. This is all from his lawsuit. The lawsuit alleges that the government went after him because he is gay and married to two men. Plus, he claims that all this stress killed his mother. And then the final part of the lawsuit, Joe claims that his business partner turned on him to get ownership of the zoo and the cats His business partner, Lowe, says that the claims are baseless, and he says that he continues to care for the cats. The federal government has had no comment on this lawsuit. But if you look at this docu-series, and I just finished it last night, I can tell you one thing. One person is nuttier than the other. I mean, they are just all huge characters, um, loony um, many of them with criminal backgrounds already and convictions. So the, the problem is, I don't know, frankly, who to believe. I believe there's some truth in here somewhere, but I, I don't know who, who to believe about what. I, yes. <laughs> yes. And I think a lot of times people start to believe in their own lies. You know, if you speak about a lie enough, it actually starts to manifest in the same part of your brain where the real memories live. And then you start to confound the real and the fake memories. And now you have this whole story that you've been telling for years, months to many people, and it becomes very real to you. It is the self-justification process of this is what happened to me, or this is how things went. And everybody is very convinced of their own narrative. So the docu-series brings up another potential crime, which to me, as a crime reporter, this is the most interesting part of the whole series, even though it's just, you know, it's a train train wreck to watch. The docuseries examines the mysterious disappearance of Carol Baskin's very wealthy and older husband, 50-year-old Don Lewis. He disappeared in August of 1997. That was her first husband, not the current husband. And here's what's so interesting. So the series recounts the steps that Don Lewis took. I mean, he literally vanished without a trace. And five years later, the courts declared him dead. 
While Carol was never named as a suspect by police and to this day is still not named as a suspect, she, of course, benefited from his death because he had all the money. Now, here's the interesting part. Joe has fiercely gone after Carol publicly about this case, about what happened to her husband. Uh, He has made unbelievable claims. He actually said in the series and continues to say that Carol killed her husband for his money. He made an incredible claim that Carol either killed him, put his body through a meat grinder and fed him to the sanctuary tigers, or he is buried under a septic tank in her 40-acre sanctuary. Those are incredible allegations. My goodness. Yes. And Joe will stop at nothing, it seems like. But this is a very weird disappearance here, though, because there are records, as you've just mentioned, you know, that Carol's former husband sought a domestic violence injunction against Carol, claiming she threatened to kill him. So there was some kind of animosity, some kind of domestic violence history already within this couple. And we do know from research that when you have a domestic violence history, sometimes, not sometimes, always, it escalates. And sometimes, unfortunately, it escalates either into an accidental death or a planned death. And in this case, Carol certainly does have a lot to gain. She's benefiting, as you mentioned, from his money. And so there's even a motive on top of that, even though that's not necessary to convict somebody of a crime. I do not believe that people just disappear. They just don't disappear. And especially someone with means, because there would be credit account records, uh, credit, credit card account records, excuse me. There would be phone records. There would be all sorts of things. Plus, he had a family. He had kids. So there's no way that he disappeared. I do believe with the courts, yes, he is dead. But the question is, where did he die? And did he die at anyone's hands? Don Lewis has adult children now and an ex-wife, and they have publicly said that they suspect Carol may have had something to do with his disappearance. The family says, this is what you just said, two months before he vanished, Don got that restraining order against Carol. So it's very interesting timing. Don Lewis's children also allege that Carol screwed them out of their inheritance. Again, Carol Baskin denies all of this. Carol says that she worked with the police when her husband disappeared and that she even hired a private investigator to look for her husband. So because the show is so popular now, it's number one on the on Netflix, that it's raising questions about Don Lewis's mysterious death, disappearance, whatever you want to call it. So the sheriff of Hillsborough County, Florida, has actually asked people, because everybody's watching this, to please call in any possible tips that they may have. The sheriff said, quote, I figure it was time to use the popularity of the show to see if anyone wanted to come forward with new leads. So he has reopened the case 23 years later. And Lewis would be 81 years old today if he were still alive. Wow. And, you know, this is an interesting case where you can use the popularity of media and try to get something that is so inexplicable to finally be solved. But it sounds like the tips that they've been receiving have not really been credible. And that's the other issue, though, when the attention comes from mass media is that maybe there's other people just looking to be famous themselves. And maybe some of them are calling in and trying to contribute. But I do think it's interesting that Carol has so vehemently denied killing Don when 
clearly they've had issues in their marriage to the point where Don had to seek a domestic violence injunction and actually received it, actually got that restraining order. So it's interesting because she doesn't really go there. It doesn't sound like she's talked much about, well, yeah, we've had our problems, but no way, no how would I have killed him. I mean, she just flatly denies it and says, oh, but I hired a private investigator. But obviously, if she has something to do with it and she's kind of a smart person, you would hire the private investigator to cover your tracks. It's kind of part of your alibi, right? Mm-hmm. And the the series has brought up all sorts of feelings and emotions for people who are are watching it. You get very involved in the feud between Carol and Joe and trying to figure out, you know, who's right, who's justified, is one picking on the other more than the other. And then there's the second issue, which is about these big cats and whether people should own these big cats. And are these things really zoos or are they just a cover for breeders who want to sell the cubs? You know, I, I there's a part in the documentary that well, there are a lot of parts that upset me, but to watch, you know, a tiger giving birth and then having her cubs pulled away from her immediately and taken and then put in a baby playpen and raised by humans, you know, that really undoes me because that is not how those cubs should be raised. And they should not be, you know, these like little doll things for people to pet and take pictures with. These are big cats. They are not indigenous to North America. I, they, I, I have such problems with that personally, you know. I that's do my too. personal opinion. I do too. And there has been research that shows that these animals, as you mentioned, this is not their indigenous environment, that they do not generally do well in this type of captivity. They don't do well when they're disconnected from their family members. They have families too, as you just pointed out. And as you mentioned, that's why people are so emotional. I know that there's been a lot of debate, people picking sides, Joe versus Carol, who do you like better? I mean, as you mentioned, they're both big personalities. They both have their own problems, but people really seem invested in picking one side versus another. I see a lot of online debates and forums about, you know, well, who do you think is right, Joe or Carol? Who do you think is the better person? I mean, they both have a lot of insane flaws, actually, just the way that they attack each other and the way that they make everything so personal. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And and people are not only picking sides, but they're becoming very active about it. I just saw a friend of mine actually post a photo this morning on Facebook that had, you know, just an average, you know, I guess viewer of the docuseries with a lawn sign about Carol and and Carol's involvement in in her husband's disappearance. So people are taking this very personally. (laughs) Very, very. Yeah. And I think that it's easy sometimes to, to get so involved because, you know, when we have these types of documentaries where you really think you're getting a peek into somebody's life and, and their, their intimate uh, thoughts and feelings, it's easy for us to connect that way and see ourselves or somebody we know in them, even in a small snippet, and then and then want to engage. And as human beings, we want that emotional connection. And I believe that more than ever now, we want that emotional connection. So even if it's to these very odd personalities in a documentary, it's still a connection and people are seeking it. I do find it rather fitting that Joe is complaining about being in a prison cell and that he says that he's being treated worse than an animal. However, Mm. if you were to look at the size of the cages that his animals were in, I could say that karma is a... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
You are right. And I think that for him, it is a very interesting, potentially fitting ending for somebody who has spent all this time putting animals in captivity and maybe not under the best uh, intentions and now him being behind bars. And yet still that narcissism peeks through where he's looking for a presidential pardon. I think the president's pretty busy right now dealing with our pandemic. Maybe his first item to do on his list next morning is not whether or not he should pardon Joe Exotic. I do believe that this series and this case will have more parts coming because I believe it's very possible that some of the people who were involved in business with him who are featured in the docuseries may very well end up also being charged with, you know, various dealings that they had. You know, they may have received some kind of immunity for testimony, but the whole thing is really shady. They're all really shady yeah. looking people, you know. So yes. I wouldn't be surprised if more charges are coming or it's also possible that this this could have a that this could have a very chilling impact on mm. that underground trade of big cats. Right. There may be, be other a bad people, as you Yeah, as you mentioned there may be other people, smaller players, but people who have been dancing around in this region and probably will have similar charges come to them as a result of this documentary coming to light. Our next case is murder at Horseshoe Lake. This is like a horror movie that just never ends. One of Arkansas's most notorious killers returns to the scene of the crime 23 years later to continue the killing spree of one family. It's unbelievable. Can you imagine that a mother and a daughter were both killed by the same man, but 23 years apart in essentially the same spot? This is an exclusive enclave of Horseshoe Lake in Hughes, Arkansas. So in essence, the killer, Travis Lewis, kills two members of the prominent Snowden family. Then he goes to prison for those two murders. And when he gets out, he kills the daughter of the woman he murdered 23 years ago. Is that unbelievable? It's unbelievable. And I mean, he finally gets out of prison and the first thing he does is do something else to try to get back in prison. What is his deal with this family? Do you think that there is an obsession with the family? Do you think that there is a very um, serious mental illness here? I really think that when you are in isolation for as long as you might be when you're in prison for over two decades, that perhaps whatever thought you had going in, it just grows because you have all of this time to obsess, to plan, to think on this. And perhaps this was something that was terribly premeditated. Maybe this was the one thing he was looking forward to doing when he got out, which of course is very chilling. But for whatever reason, he clearly had some kind of vendetta against this family. A fixation. Yes, a vendetta. Yes. So so let's go back. 75-year-old Sally Snowden McKay and her 52-year-old cousin Lee Baker were murdered in September 1996. Lee Baker was a well-known blues guitarist in Memphis. Memphis is about a half hour away from here. The two were murdered at home. They were shot to death by Travis Lewis, who at the time was only 16 years old. And after he murdered them, he set the house on fire. 
a Snowden family member says that Travis was actually burglarizing the house at the time and that Sally and her cousin Lee walked in and that's likely why he murdered them. Either way, not a good reaction to a situation when you have to make a choice, right? Murder is not the answer. So here's the background on Travis Lewis. He grew up on Horseshoe Lake and his parents worked and lived on the Snowden property. So, you know, he grew up with the people he ultimately ended up killing, which to me is is really scary and disturbing. He pleaded guilty to the killings and he was sentenced to 28 and a half years in prison. Then last week on March 25th, Travis, who is now 39 years old and on parole, breaks into the Snowden family home, which is right next door to the property that he burned down and the site of the other two murders. 63-year-old Martha McKay was at home. She heard something, so she triggered the home's alarm system, which you know messaged the alarm company and the police that there was either a break-in or an assault going on. Two cops arrive, and the back door is open. Unfortunately, by the time they find Martha, it is too late for her. She is dead. But the attacker is still in the house. And what's shocking is, you know, the police at this point have no idea who the attacker is. So, you know, Martha clearly knew who killed her, right? Mm -hmm. And, And we ultimately end up finding out that it was the same guy who killed her mother. So Travis jumps out of an upstairs window. He runs into a car. He drives the car across the yard. The car gets stuck. So then he jumps in the lake. And that's the last time anybody sees him. He goes under. I don't know whether he didn't know how to swim, but nonetheless, he died in that lake. His body was later pulled from the water. And at the time of this recording, we are still waiting for the autopsy results for both of them, including Martha. So we don't know whether Martha was stabbed, whether she was shot. We don't know exactly how Martha died. Here's where the story gets unbelievably complicated, and maybe you can help shed some light on this. Martha McKay, this is the woman who was killed last week, ends up befriending her mother's killer while he is in prison for the murder of her mother. She stayed in contact with Travis the entire time. And then when he got out and he was paroled, she continued to stay in contact with him and to support him. The family says that they were opposed to the death penalty. And a relative says that Martha believed in her heart that Travis deserved a chance at rehabilitation, which of course says a lot about Martha's kind, big, and forgiving heart. But what does it say about Travis? You know, what is so sad about this is that Martha was somebody who clearly seemed to want to see the good in people. And especially when Travis had killed uh, her mother and apparently her partner Lee, relatively Baker, it was something that she probably attributed to his young age, impulsive, reckless. He was 16 after all. It just takes such an amazing person, as you already alluded to, Anna, that they could forgive somebody who would brutally murder your relatives this way. And not only did she keep in touch, thinking probably in her heart that maybe he just needs love and support to be a better person, investigators even said that Travis worked at Martha's home 
for a time before he was banned from the property about a month ago. And so she even gave him a job and he does this to her. To me, this really does draw that line when we ask that question of nature versus nurture when somebody is a psychopath or has antisocial personality disorder and they commit crimes. Is this somebody who does so because their environment was abusive and they didn't have love? Or is this just somebody who might have been born evil? And I'm sorry, but this evidence points to this person looking like this is a biological issue that this is somebody who was born evil. And no matter how much love and support you give this person, no matter how many years you invest in this person, they're still going to be who they are. Uh, I get that question a lot on YouTube. A lot of the comments are always about, you know, there's criticism. It's like, you're always saying, Oh, everyone's mentally ill or don't you believe in pure evil? And I'm, that's why I was so curious about your opinion on that. So you do believe that some people are just pure evil. I think it's a very small percentage of these individuals, because when you look at people who commit crimes, the majority of them has suffered abuse at some point in their lives, particularly in their childhood, or they had parents around them who rewarded criminality. Maybe they were criminals themselves and taught them the ways of being a criminal. But there is always a proportion of those individuals that when they are in a stable relationship or when they go to therapy, that they seem to be able to at least turn their ways enough to be a semi-productive citizen. But somebody like Travis, I just don't see those bits of information here. I don't know what his childhood was like, and I don't have that information. But certainly we have this information that at least Martha invested in him. So there was at least one person who was trying to show him unconditional love. And I don't know what other kinds of unconditional love there are to forgive the person that kills two of your relatives. And yet he killed Martha for her goodwill. It's incredible because she clearly saw something in him, right? There was yeah. something in in her in him that brought out her compassion. So she saw something in him. And I don't know, is that also a way of coping with the loss of two relatives of the, of the heinous murder of your mother? Is that a way that, you know, maybe she was coping to deal with her pain was if she could help Travis, then somehow some good would come out of all this bad? It's a good question, Anna. And I think that you're right. It may be a coping strategy. This is certainly not the first time that we've heard of family members forgiving their family's killer. And whenever I hear that story, I always think, what an amazing person, because I think that's a very hard thing to do. But when you back up a bit and you look at the long lens, I do think that it is a type of coping strategy because anger and resentment eat away at your own physical and mental health. When you resent and hate somebody, it really takes a lot of energy out of you. And, and sometimes by letting go, you're actually doing yourself a favor. You're saying, let me explain this a different way so I can have closure so that every single day I wake up, I don't wake up with hatred in my heart. And so you're right. I think sometimes it is utilized as a coping strategy, but certainly as you already mentioned, I think this says a lot more about who Martha is, that maybe she's just the kind of person who, despite what anybody does, she's likely to look at the positive, likely to look at the potential. But Travis, even if he had potential, he clearly never realized it. And he clearly just cannot be reformed in any way. 
No, he couldn't be. While this is a shocking case for all of us, this is a case that has gripped the South because this family is so prominent. The McKays are part of the Snowden family, a very rich, prominent Southern family. And the historic Snowden house where Martha was killed last week is a lakeside mansion that was owned by the Snowden family. It had been turned into a bed and breakfast. It's a gorgeous 100-year-old mansion. It was very popular for weddings. So it's a three-story, 6,000-square-foot home, sweeping staircase, everything you would expect of a grand Southern mansion. So it was so famous and so well-known that it was even featured in the 1994 movie, The Client, which is based on a John Grisham book. The reason I'm bringing this up is because the Snowden family is the fabric of this of this area, of this community, you know, over several Southern states. So, so many people remembered the first series of murders. And then to hear that the daughter was killed, it's like the community is in shock. I mean, the, the police, the sheriffs, they cannot believe that this is the case that they're investigating. How can it be? And Anna, there is such a thing as vicarious trauma. When we think about the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder, you don't have to have experienced the trauma yourself personally to have some of those symptoms of re-experiencing nightmares, avoidance, negative beliefs about yourself and the world and how life is and, and having a hypervigilant stance, thinking bad things are going to happen to you and watching your back at every turn. And I would imagine that for the individuals who had known this family, I mean, in some ways they were very close, small, close-knit community here. Maybe everybody knew them at least a little bit by extension, it's almost like being re-traumatized again. And I'm sure that this brings up feelings for themselves about them not feeling safe in that community. What might happen to them and their loved ones? And this could happen to anyone. And I think that that is something that we sometimes don't speak about because some of these policemen, investigators, they may be struggling with some of that themselves. And yet they still got to do their job and they got to hone in and they got to clean up the pieces, look at the autopsy report. And, and I do think that it's just so tragic for this community, for this to happen in such an unbelievable way twice to the same family in the same physical location. It's like Horseshoe Lake and the Snowden family compound are just haunted, haunted. Yeah. Right. And they were doing so many other celebratory events on these properties for a while. Weddings, conferences, parties. So I think it was associated with a place of togetherness and joy and community. And now I think, as you mentioned, forever tainted and haunted by these horrible murders. What's amazing about this pandemic and this lockdown, I feel that we're all experiencing is that while we are so isolated in our homes that through social media, we are very connected. And I feel that on this program, we are becoming even more connected with our listeners and our viewers. I cannot tell you the number of comments that we are getting and how they're not only sharing what's going on with them, but how isolated they feel, how they need a distraction. Obviously, I know I need a distraction. I'm so happy to be able to work and do this podcast. So I want to share some of our comments from our viewers uh, with you, Dr. Judy, and all of you who are you know, hanging in there with us. So in the comments section, thanks for continuing the podcast during this time of uncertainty and shelter-in-place order for my state and many other places in the nation and throughout the world. It's such a great way to just leave the worry alone and focus on my true crime fix, 
See you in a few days. Stay safe. Positive vibes and prayers. Wash your hands and safe distance from each other. Right? Uh, I mean, I could have written that. That's how I feel. Yes. And so relatable. I think so many people are looking for a way to turn off that 24-hour news cycle right now. And it's just so easy to get sucked in because then it just rolls right into the next segment and you think, oh my gosh, I need to listen to this too. But really, everybody, there's so much information that's repeated every day. Definitely stay informed, but there's no reason why you need to be watching the news for more than two hours max a day if you're an adult and one hour max if you're a teenager or a child. And I think the way that we try to regain some level of control is after consuming all of that information and maybe feeling overwhelmed, ask yourself, what's one thing I can do today to protect myself a little better and protect my family a little better based on what I learned? Go do that thing. And then you got to disconnect, which is why it is so great, Anna, that you're keeping this podcast going. You are helping people because we just need distractions. We need to get off of that news cycle and live the rest of our lives. And I think that connection that you're feeling, that you're seeing even more and more comments pouring in, it's people craving that social connection because as human beings, we're social animals and we need to find more creative ways to check in with one another. And I think shared experiences is the best way to do so. So right now we can't have lunch and dinner and coffee with our friends, but we can do it via FaceTime and Zoom. And we can even have a workout together on Zoom. And in that way, you almost feel like you're still with them connecting meaningfully, even if you can't be together physically. Cami M. writes, thank you for welcoming us into your lovely home. I love watching your reports. And during this odd time, it's able to keep my mind off of the COVID-19 crisis, which has basically taken over everyone's life in some way or another. God bless you. Stay safe. And 21 Faust writes, thank you guys so much for still bringing us this content. I'm from Australia and we're not in complete lockdown, but I think that we will be soon enough. These take my mind off what is currently happening around the world. It's definitely scary times we're all facing right now. As sad as these cases are and as horrific as these cases are, you bring to us, it's also a welcome part of my life right now. Whoever reads this, take care and look after yourself and everyone around you during this time. Hope you all stay safe and healthy. Keep safe, everyone. So I, I, I totally you know, I feel the same way. And I respond to a lot of these, these comments myself saying, I'm in the same boat. And thank you so much for reaching out to us and connecting. And I do want to get to something that, um, that you're doing, Judy. So I, I follow you on Instagram. And the other day I saw you doing jumping jacks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you know, I think it's because we have to start getting creative about our workouts and physical exercise is so important for our mental and our physical health. It helps us decrease stress. It helps us get those happy hormones, those endorphins going. And people are feeling cooped up and they're saying, oh my gosh, I don't have my gym. I don't have the workout classes I usually go to. What do I do? And the part of my Instagram that I was trying to illustrate with those jumping jacks and some other silly exercises is you can still do things from home. So get inventive, run in place, dance to your favorite soundtrack, just have fun with it. But we all need to move a bit more. And I think that's sometimes when we're cooped up, we kind of just get in a funk. We don't even change out of our pajamas. And that actually makes us feel even more cooped up, anxious and depressed. And so definitely try to get moving 
go outside and take a breath of fresh air. As long as you're practicing social distancing, you can take walks. You can go and bask in the sunshine a little bit. And I just encourage all of us to still do those things that we know is good for us right now and not change our structure too much. Thank God for this podcast, or I would not be taking a shower or getting dressed. Honestly, (laughs) this is the day of the week that I really clean myself up, do my hair, and put on something other than what I call my Corona wear. Oh, no, but you look beautiful, Anna. And again, it's so good to see you and connect with you. I do feel like this is a very intimate space. I know that the... uh, listener and follower, Tammy, just mentioned that as well, that you're welcoming everyone into your home. And I do think that it's an interesting, funny silver lining that people feel like they get to know you just a bit better because they see you in your home sheltering in place and they feel like they have a more intimate connection with you. And I think that makes them feel good. I even bought daffodils for our viewers. Aww. <laughs> I put them out I, on, the, on my one trip to the market. I'm like, I'm getting daffodils for the show. I love <laughs> right. it. Well, that's it for this week. Dr. Judy, thank you so much for talking us off the ledge, as I say. Um, where can people find you if they you know, just want to hear more of your positive thoughts and insight into what's going on in the world? Thank you so much, Anna. Always good to be with you. You guys can follow me at Dr. Judy Ho, D-R-J-U-D-Y-H-O. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or you can see what I'm up to at my website, drjudyho.com. Thank you so much. Stay safe there, Judy. And you can always find me on all the social media platforms at Anna G News. That's Anna with one N. And as always, you can find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, plus, of course, YouTube. And you can get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.